Welcome to the 37th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we discuss murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where a drug kingpin murdered three adults along with two innocent children to prevent them from testifying against him. Our show is often horrifying and graphic and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but we must warn you that sometimes we'll make jokes and laugh during our podcast. Want to learn more about us? Please visit our website at it wasn't me truecrime.com to find links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. If you like what you hear and you'd like to help us out, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. Also, please recommend your podcast, our podcast to your friends. You can recommend your podcast too, <laughs> but please don't forget to recommend recommend ours. Hey, Cindy, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm great. So you want to fill us in on um, where we had to go the other day? I think we brought it up last week. Yes, I went to um, my surgeon, I guess you'd say. And I mean, that's what he is. He's a surgeon. And he removed some scar tissue in my lips to kind of level it out so that when I smile, it's you know, it lifts a little bit and kind of even on the same side. Right, because your lip, like one side was normal and the other side kind of drooped? I can't A little bit because when they took all the skin, when they took out the cancer, they didn't want to take too much. Well, then, so I had a surgery where they pulled it up a little bit. Then they wanted to wait for all the swelling to go down to see how my lip was going to end. And so it's just a little, not droopy, but. No, it's, it's, I can definitely see that it's, yeah. I mean, I I didn't have a problem with your lip before. (laughs) I didn't think it was bad, but I know you were very. Yeah. You were very self-conscious about it. So, yeah, it looks good. Thank it looks you. good. And, you know, she does not have any pain. Like, no. she has no nerves in her face right there. So, Fine. so yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with that. They called, and they're like, are you having any pain? I'm like, nope, not at all. They were like, am I taking anything? I'm like, nope. They were like, okay. Okay. Yeah, I know. That's just weird. They gave me just three like, Tylenol before the surgery. Yeah. Which yeah. they had never done that before, so I thought that was weird. Well, they're but. not giving any other kind of drugs, like, afterwards. So, mm-hmm. it's like Tylenol Motrin. It's, mm-hmm. Where you go. Yep. All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started because I know you have to go to one of your 50 jobs after <laughs> this. So um, well, this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, domestic violence. So um, you want to just give us a definition of what domestic violence is because, because I'm sure you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I in my mind, domestic violence is like physical physical violence. Okay. But I know that there's emotional and verbal but when I think someone being arrested for domestic violence, I feel I, in my mind, it's like things are being thrown. You're in danger. Right. You're, you know, um, maybe you're not physically being hurt, like pushed or hit, but maybe someone threw something at you. Or do you, Does that make sense? Yes. Like they're not, may not yes. be physically putting their hands on you, but they're doing other things to put your life in jeopardy. And that's very interesting you. that you said that because I, because that just sparked something in me because... If a person is being, um, well, domestic violence does, when you think about someone being arrested, it is, there's, there's physical violence in there right. or Whether there's about to be, of it yes. or, yeah. but if someone is, is mentally abusing you or emotionally abusing, you can't call the police for that. I no. mean, yeah. <laughs> Not at all. So, and, and it's, it's insidious. So you don't, you don't, it kind of creeps in. Yes. I mean, uh, I, yeah, I guess, yeah, and it, and it can happen. Domestic violence is any kind of um, any kind of a police response to domestic violence. Those are some of the scariest ones to respond to. Yes, 
And um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of st a few statistics. But so I found a 2018 Washington Post analysis of domestic violence in the U.S. And I'm just going to cite um, three three points. It was it was pretty long. Very interesting article. If you're interested in that, I do have that in the show notes. But the Washington Post cited that of the 4,484 women killed in 47 major U.S. cities during the past 10 years, nearly half of them, 46 percent, died at the hands of an intimate partner. In many cases, they were the, among the most brutal deaths. Mm. They also said the most telegraphed, but I didn't understand what that meant, the most telegraphed. So I don't know if that means like the most um, posted in the media. I don't know what that meant. So if you know what that means, please um, send us an email um, at a, a true crime podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Thank you. I will know that one day. All right. In a close analysis of homicides in five cities, the Post found that more than one third of all men who killed a current or former intimate partner were publicly known to be a potential threat to their loved one ahead of the attack. Oh, wow. So people knew this person was dangerous, but, you know, the police were unable to do anything. I mean, a restraining order, what is that going to do? Oh, yeah. It's right. just a piece of paper. Right. right? You know, yeah. Earl, he walked straight through that restraining order. <laughs> <laughs> and Fort Worth. So these are the five cities that they really focus on. Fort Worth, Las Vegas, Oklahoma City, San Diego, and St. Louis. 36% of the 280 men implicated in a domestic killing had a previous restraining order against them. Or had been convicted of domestic abuse or violent crime, including murder. Wow. So a lot of times these cases, they know that this is a potentially deadly situation, but what can you do? It's kind of like, you know, what can we do to protect ourselves right. if we're with a dangerous person? Do they even know? Does like, like as a female or a male get into a relationship with someone you know, they're not going to be, you know, oh, yeah, well, I was convicted of this in the, my previous life or I have a restraining order against, you know, it might be so far along before they even know that about the murder. Yeah. Or any of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. But I think, too, I that this up, meant so. like say that say that someone's husband hit them in the past. <coughs> they were charged with it and then, um, you know, got the charge of domestic violence or violent crime and then. Or even dropped. Yeah. Because a lot of people... Won't press charges. Won't press charges. Right. Sometimes the state will pick it up. But uh -huh. I've known a couple of incidences where um, people have been arrested. And then the... Let's say there was a... I knew a couple that... Couple A... Or person A was like choking person B. And when person B kind of like passed out but came to, then they beat the shit out of person A. Well, person B got arrested. Because person A didn't look... You know, person A got beat up. But yeah. per person B... They were choking me. I passed out, you know, and then so but then person A wrote a letter to the judge saying, I don't want to press charges. I was, you know. Right. Yeah. Please take mercy. You know, I love this person. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was my fault. Whatever. And the judges are like, okay. Sometimes, um, not always. I mean, right. it just I'm sure it depends on the instance. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and start. Um, this story begins in Kansas, and it also ends in Kansas, but it, these people move. So we're going to start with Karen Hetrick. She was born July 30th, 1965, to Paul and Pat Hetrick in Topeka. She was popular, athletic, and smart. She, you know, had a lot of friends. She was involved in sports. When she graduated from Wichita High School South in 1983, she attended Kansas State University, and there she met Craig Kaler. Craig was an upper, uh, I, I believe he was a senior, uh, senior in his last year of 
engineering and they fell in love at first at first sight basically okay. um they were both ambitious they were both top of the class students and they were both described by their peers as very bright they're very you know sociable um craig ended up accepting a highly sought after engineering job in Colorado. So the two ended up getting married on December 28th, 1985. And then um, they welcomed their first daughter, Emily, after they moved to Colorado. Now, by all appearances and by all accounts, the the couple appeared to be madly in love. People would say, you know, Karen, he's awfully demanding. You know, I mean, he had to have everything just so in the house, dinner served by a certain time. I mean, as you're going to learn, he gave her a regimented schedule that she was supposed to. <laughs> what? <laughs> right? Right? That she was supposed to follow. If he didn't follow it, she paid the price. So he probably was like this from the get-go. He was. and I, But she was so in love that she told her friends that, you know, she loves it. That's her job. Her job as a wife is to make her new husband happy. Her friends described her as waiting on him hand and foot, as well as being the perfect homemaker. She and the children uh, throughout the years would walk on eggshells when he was home because he wanted everything to be just so. And when it wasn't, they all paid the price. In 1999, an opportunity came along that Craig could not pass up. He was offered the position of utility director of Weatherford, Texas. The family moved to Weatherford. They really liked it. There's, they settled nicely into their new community, and they had two more children, their daughter, Sean, and a son, Sean. Um, I'm sorry. Their daughter, Lauren, and son, Sean. The family was a hit in Weatherton. The daughters were in a band in high school called uh, Crazy Days or Days. I can't remember the name, and I don't think I put it in here, but um, it was a rock band, which I thought was kind of cool. That is cool. Um, Friends describe Karen as fun, loving, and creative. She was always happy. She was always positive. Um, Colleagues and friends considered Craig to be brilliant and hardworking. They seemed to be the perfect family. They were involved in their children's lives and sporting events and other things. They were involved in the community. Craig's best friend, Victor, said that they were the couple that everyone was trying to live up to. Friends in Texas claimed that Kaler was professional and efficient and made his family his top priority. A friend of Kaler's compared Kaler's family to the Stepford Wives, though. Oh. So have you ever seen seen the movie or read the book? Yeah, yes. <clears throat> okay, so basically, it's like this like cookie cutter society, right? And the women are um uh they're robots basically, so they're perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, they dress perfectly. They answer the door when the husband comes home with a drink in their hand and apron and high like heels. Like Donna Reed. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And the children were too. Anyway, the guy said, I don't think I even ever told him this, but they reminded me of a Stepford family. They were just too perfect. The man further stated that Kaler was active in the lives of all his children and the local community. The Kalers appeared to have a perfect marriage and family life for more than two decades. So that, you know, there are a few um, bumps along the road, but basically everybody just thought they're the perfect family. It's kind of like watching this, like some people on Facebook, you know, oh, my perfect husband, my perfect wife. Right. And I'm like. There no. is no perfect. No. Well, if there is, I would say mine kind of comes close to it. But you know, me, you all who know me <laughs> know. Yeah. Anyway, however, Karen once told her sister, Lynn, that their life was not what it seemed. Karen told her sister that her husband was sexually demanding and often had very bizarre requests. We're going to get a little bit more into 
one of those later, but I don't go into any of those. Okay. Frankly, I mean, I probably would if I found it, but I never found okay. what those were. She also claimed that he insisted on having sexual relations with her every night at 8 p.m. without fail. And that she had a curfew. Oh, hell no. <laughs> every single night. No. For what, 21 years, I Jesus think, 23 years. Christ. So she said no. And we're, we're going to get to that later, why she didn't say no. Okay. But every, I actually knew somebody whose husband, like, required her to have sex with him every single night. Every night. I don't even know what to say to that. Well, I mean, every night seems a little excessive. Excessive, right? Yes. Okay. Ah. All right. I can't keep up with that. All right. Karen Kaler describes sex as turning into one of her chores and that she gives to get and that it was just something she did to make things run smoothly in the Kaler household. That's sad. Yes. Craig also gave Karen a carefully supervised allowance. He would demand to see receipts for all her purchases, including everyday items like diapers and cereal. What? <laughs> yeah, fucking right. <laughs> Karen devoted most of her time to her children as a homemaker, but she had always been athletic and active. So to kill time like while Craig worked and while the kids were in school, she decided to join a local gym called the Powerhouse. Uh-oh. Right? What do you, what's your prediction? Oh, someone's going to give her a little too much attention. Okay. All right. One source said that Karen would raise her gym membership money through baking and selling cakes because she knew that Craig would have refused to pay for the membership. I'm not sure how accurate that is. I mean, who sells cakes and stuff? I mean, maybe she was like a great cake, cake maker. Yeah, like so, a, well, that's just one source. I didn't see it anywhere else, but that's what, what I, one person said. Would he said. really refuse to pay a, a, I mean, I guess. Like, wow. Yeah. Well, before long, she was a regular at the gym and discovered that she really had a passion for teaching others about health and fitness. So she was soon hired as a fitness instructor. And Craig was okay with this as long as she was home on time to pick up the kids, make sure they had dinner, and for her to perform her other wifely duties. So it was only during his work hours. Yeah. But I mean, I guess I, I mean, my husband doesn't mind that I work another job. You know, he's not like that kind of, but I mean, it is. I guess if he was working all day long and was providing and I wasn't working, then he was like, okay, well, if you're going to do this, you know, he's probably, I mean, I kind of get, yes. be home, take, pick up the kids because I'm working right. these long hours or whatever. I mean, I'm, right. I get that part, but, um, the, all the other stuff I don't get. Yeah. So, and, I mean, and she dealt with this. Maybe so, she was raised like that. Uh, it's a possibility. I mean, I didn't get that when, when I read about her early years, okay. but you know, she could have just been, you know, one of those people who, um, believe that the man of the he, or tries to please the yeah. person that she's with or whatever. Like I know yeah. someone who you know the man of the house. They they do what the man of the oh, house really? says. Yeah, does I mean, that they still just, exist in our day and time? I guess it does. Yeah, I don't mean to offend anybody who believes that way, honestly. But I I'm sorry, I'm not like that. All right. Well, at the gym, Karen worked with Sonny Reese, who was another fitness instructor, and the two quickly became inseparable. Is Sonny female? Sonny is female. Okay. Yes. Because it could go either way, right? Right, yes. yeah. Okay. I'm like, S-U-N-N-Y or S-O-N-N-Y? Now, there are several accounts of how this relationship started, okay. all right? So one account is that Craig kind of pushed them together because he was hoping to have a threesome. Oh, of course he was. Okay. Now, that's another another um, idea. Another account of how they met is that... He noticed that their friendship was growing closer, and he encouraged a relationship by proposing the threesome with the two of them. Now, Sonny claims that he went so far as to send her flowers and texts to try and entice her into the threesome. But Karen and Sonny refused Craig's request. 
Supposedly, the two women grew more serious with each other, but I'm not sure how much of this is hype and media attention. Mm-hmm. What is known is that Craig told people that he initially thought his wife was going through an experimental phase and would soon get over her lesbian interests. So, you know, I mean, it's funny because, you know, we hang out a lot and we get together a lot. My husband's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, how's your girlfriend doing? Oh, so does mine. Okay. So I'm almost like wondering how much of this is that. Yeah. Okay. Um, although, uh, you know, I'm not sure what their relationship was. I don't believe that she fell in love with, with Sonny and decided to leave him. But I think that the relationship with Sonny maybe gave her the confidence, the confidence to maybe do it. And so he's going to blame her. Right. Of course. Yeah. Right. All right. What is known is that Craig told people he initially thought his wife was going through an experimental phase and would soon get over a lesbian interest. He told everyone that the opposite had occurred and that the relationship he initially encouraged had become increasingly out of his control. So it's all about control with him. Actually, I'm thinking angered by this development, Craig decided that his best bet was to move the family out of town. So he applied for a job somewhere else wow. and he got it. So he became the, um, he got a new job at the water and light department in Columbia, Missouri and moved his family there in, two, in June, 2008. Now one source claimed that Karen was upset about having to uproot her life and family, but I'm not sure how true this is. She seemed to get on just fine in Missouri. Anyway, this source that said that Craig hoped that the move would effectively put an end to Karen and Sonny's affair. But despite his wishes, Karen and Sonny continued communicating long distance. They emailed each other. They called each other. And then they would visit. Like, they'd meet halfway. Um, so they were still friends. Reese said that although she and Karen spoke every day, often about her marital issues, Sonny had no idea that her friend's life could ever be in danger. I really didn't find out about the troubles in her marriage until she moved to Missouri. Sonny said she did share with me the details of what was happening in her day-to-day life, and it did concern me. I try to help her by being a friend and listening without judgment. So again, I'm wondering if it's just, you know, their best friends, um, if he's like blowing this relationship out of control, out of... As an excuse As for an excuse behavior. for why she's leaving him. I mean, God forbid that a woman have a close friend without it being sexual in the eyes I of know, a man, right? right? Yeah. All right. Well, whatever the case, and I'm not saying that she didn't have an affair with Sonny. I, I don't, I'm not sure that I'm 100% convinced of that. But even if she did, uh, who cares? Right. I mean, I don't care. I mean, she's married, so maybe that should come into play. But, uh, you know, if it's a man or woman, I don't care. All right, whatever the case, Craig and Karen's relationship became increasingly strained after the move. Hey everyone, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about today's sponsor, Girl Means Business. If you dream of starting your own business and being your own boss, or if you have a side hustle that you're wanting to grow, you've got to check out girlmeansbusiness.com. Kendra Swalls, the brainchild behind this brand, is an experienced career coach, entrepreneur, blogger, podcaster, and teacher who can help you take your business to the next level. At girlmeansbusiness.com, You will find everything you need to know to grow your business from free advice on building a client base, practical tips on using social media, an explanation of and advice on search engine optimization, and free resources that you can download right now. Listen to the Girl Means Business podcast for pro tips that give you immediate advice on how to turn your passions into profits. Follow your dreams, start your own business, and know that Kendra's got your back. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Kendra's been there learning and making mistakes along her way. Failures can be your successes. Check out girlmeansbusiness.com today and follow your dreams. Now back to the show. In 2008, December 31st, around that time, they went back to Texas because some of their old friends were throwing a New Year's Eve party. 
And, you know, the relationship was obviously strained between Craig and Karen. And Karen was spotted in another room with Sonny. And a couple said that they saw Sonny and uh, Karen kissing. And they've been married for, what, 20-something years at this point? 20, yes. I believe close to 20 years, yes. They were uh, married in... 85? 85, so 23 years, yes, when this happened. Now, supposedly Sonny and Karen had wandered off together and they were seen kissing by some guests. This profoundly embarrassed Craig and they got, and he like really started yelling at her and screaming at her. And it was like awful. They got in an awful fight at this party and she ended up leaving. He was, he followed her. When they returned to Columbia, she started sleeping in another room. And of course, this infuriated Craig because he's highly demanding. He wasn't getting his nightly. He wasn't getting his nightly and he didn't have control over her anymore. Yeah. And he ended up calling and emailing all of her family and friends saying, oh, she's a lesbian. Talk her into, talk sense into her. Oh she's going crazy. Well, that's not going to help. That Craig. is definitely not going to help. That's not going to work, Craig. Could you imagine? <laughs> I mean, just the embarrassment of, you know, your private life getting yeah. shouted out to other, everyone no. you know. My husband is in intensely private uh-huh so like that might send him over the edge if i did some shit like that yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. seriously yeah because he doesn't like he doesn't get on facebook very often and ever and we're just not that i mean we're not that kind of couple and it is i'm not always like oh my you know my sexy husband i see some people right. do that and i'm like yeah what? right <laughs> but i just that would be way stepping over yeah absolutely i mean and even if he did that to me but i'm thinking the roles reversed he would totally flip out right i mean he's just you know and this was pretty much her last straw she was totally over it she was working at the gym in columbia and she confided in another woman one of her clients whose name i'm just going to call her tracy tracy said that they kind of opened up to each other because both of them had experienced domestic violence They both had been sexually abused. Karen started opening up about our marriage and Karen told her that Craig was never happy. He would always complain about something different every day and Craig was losing it because he was no longer in control. So no matter what she did, she couldn't please him. Right. Now, the sex, she was, so she, is she saying that her husband sexually assaults her? Yes. Is that where her sexual abuse is coming from? Yes. So we're going to get into that. I don't go deep into that. But if she told him no, remember he demands it. it, Yes. Oh, fuck that shit. I'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah. No. (laughs) I punch hard. Mm Mm-hmm. Tracy remembers that Karen one time showed up at the gym. She had bruises all up and down her arms and she didn't try to hide it. She just, you know, wore whatever she wore. She was still her upbeat um, self. Karen was living her everyday life. She was living openly. She was enjoying life, making the best of it with her kids. Karen had also enrolled in college and gone back to school. She's working towards a degree in health sciences. I think I read that she wanted to get into physical therapy. Oh, nice. Good for her. So she was confident. She was gaining her independence and it must have infuriated her husband. I mean, he's losing control. She didn't need him anymore and he knew it, but he refused to give in. In March 2009, he tried to exert dominance over her by hugging her when she didn't want him to. She pulled away and he grabbed her in a bear bear hug and squeezed her hard enough to leave serious bruises on her arms. She called the police and he was arrested and charged with third degree domestic assault. He said, oh, well, I just want a little affection for my wife. And so he squeezed her hard enough to leave bruises. I mean, can you imagine that? That's that's a pretty serious bear hug. Yeah. Right. There was no affection whatsoever. Yeah, no, he was trying to hurt her. He was, and he got arrested. Mm -hmm. Karen moved out with the kids, and they filed a restraining order. 
She also filed for divorce. Now, domestic assault in the third degree is a class A misdemeanor in Missouri, punishable by up to one year in jail and a fine of up to $1,000 or both. Now, I looked up the domestic violence. I went to the website and and they actually say on the website to the abusers, we suggest you hire an attorney because a conviction for domestic assault becomes part of your permanent criminal record. A conviction for domestic violence, even a misdemeanor, can hurt you when you're looking for a job or applying to rent a house or apartment. And it can also be grounds for revoking a professional license. It could also be grounds for termination if you work for the city mm-hmm. as a city director, right? Mm-hmm. In court documents, Karen detailed physical, mental, and sexual abuse. She wrote, we have been married for a long time, 23 years. Over time, it has become apparent that Craig is controlling. I've learned along the way that he is capable of using force. The issues vary, but I figured out how to keep things from becoming ugly. When money was a problem, I wouldn't tell him what things like groceries, clothing, etc., would cost. When it was about sex, I decided it was easier to give him what he wanted every night than to refuse. On the occasions I would refuse, he has been known to be forceful and mean. So he would just take it or, you know, make her pay. Craig was so distracted by his failed marriage in the meantime that it severely compromised his work. So even before he was arrested, there were some issues right. going on. Colleagues reported that he obsessively went over old family albums with them during work hours. So he was obsessed with his family. Kaler was asked to resign finally from his job as the director of Columbia's Water and Light Department in September 2009 after he was arrested for abusing his wife. So Missouri doesn't play that. You know, that you happened be- here, right? too. Like oh, in, did it? In our town. Oh, okay. Like- yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Right. In my own little city. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Spouse beaters. You lose your job. Okay, and a lot more. During the months that followed, Craig's state of mind worsened and he became obsessed with Karen. He stalked her, spied on her, took the air over tires, and st- installed spyware on their home computer, which I'll get into in a little bit, too. Good grief. Yeah. His mood and actions deteriorated. He was obsessed with jealousy and badgered his daughter's with tales of his wife's betrayals. So he would, you know, say bad things to his daughters about her. Your mom's a whore. She's a slut. She's a lesbian. Um, all these awful things. That's terrible. He felt that the girls, his two daughters, Lauren and Emily, had sided with his wife and had accepted Sonny into the family. So he's like, oh, you know, they're all just stupid lesbian lovers. When she asked for the divorce, he made it ugly. So everything I read said that it was a contentious divorce. He refused to collaborate or negotiate or whatever people do during a divorce. I've never had one. But he refused, like whenever she would give an inch, like he would then ask for more or... It was, it was ridiculous. Now, in, in Missouri, it is not super easy to get a divorce because uh, I know people, my sister-in-law, it took her forever to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. Now, Missouri requires that a couple be legally separated for at least a year if they both agree or if they disagree at least 24 months. So at the end of the 24 months, is it just up to the lawyer? I mean, up to the judge? It's up to the judge. And then you have to wait for her court date kept getting canceled like over years, like four or five years. It took her to get her divorce. Uh, And and I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was about that long. I talked to someone last night about their divorce. And um, he said that he battled his ex-wife in court for 10 years. And was that in Florida or somewhere else? It was in Florida. Okay. Over the course of their separation, Craig became very despondent. He had no interest in seeing his daughters and he only wanted his son to visit. He wasn't around due to the restraining order, but as I said, he stalked and terrorized Karen and his kids. That's so shitty. I mean, Uh it's already bad enough what he's doing to his wife, but his kids too? If you 
and I know that we're just closet, you know, we're just closet investigators or right. whatever we want to call ourselves. But if you had a guess, would you say that he had any sort of mental health issues? Yeah. And what would you call them? Like, what would you say his issues are? Let's see if you can guess his diagnosis. Oh, narcissistic. Okay. Um, I would say he probably had some, uh, what is it when everything has to be in a certain order? Like OCD? OCD. Okay. Um, probably a little bipolar, maybe? Okay. Um, you're right. He okay. had narcissism or his narcissistic personality disorder and um, personality, no, histrionic personality disorder, which is like okay. very dramatic and blowing things way out of proportion. And then um, then the OCD. He definitely had that controlling issue. Okay. And the thing about narcissists is that they have to be adored. And if in any kind of any time that they don't have adoration from their loved ones or people that um, they expect to have that adoration from, then they start going crazy. They start losing it. It's an ego thing. Like it strikes them to their core. And is that like something they're born with? Or is it like a manifestation of like, and you just, yeah, you know what? I didn't go that deep into it, but I have, I've had a narcissist, a narcissist boss before yeah. and it was pure hell. Oh, like yeah. they have a lot, and it, it's like mental, like oh, a, like yeah. a energy vampire. Mm hmm. And you just leave there feeling like you're lower than low. And yep. then that's, that was my key sign. Like there's, there's something wrong in this relationship, but it's very insidious. Like you can't pinpoint it exactly. Mm -hmm. Until almost like you're outside of it. Right. Because right. that was kind of like. That's exactly right. Because, our... okay, yes. So if you're on the, on if you're on the receiving end, like the end of like, oh yeah, you're on my shit list today. Yeah. Then you knew it. Yeah. And yeah. so did everybody else, even though it wasn't stated. <laughs> All right, so I want to talk a little bit about how Karen and her family were harassed. So other than the bruises on Karen's arms, there were no traces of other visible abuse. So despite the harassment and all that, like it's hard to pinpoint to police what is going on. You can't arrest someone for calling your mom a whore or you can't arrest for someone for sitting in the bank parking lot, however far away your restraining order is. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of things going on that, you know, they had no control over. Yeah. Right. Like he was living right outside the law. Exactly. Right, right on the edge. Right on the inside R of the law. Right. Basically. Exactly. All right. So what she did know is that he was losing it. He wasn't handling separation well. She was very worried about his welfare. Like she would call his parents and say, you know, he's not doing well. I'm very concerned. Uh, that's just the kind of person she was. Like she, she still loved him. Yeah. That's the father of her kids. I'm not going to. She's just done with it yeah right she knew that he was hacking into her computer and cyber stalking her she hired a, a computer forensic investigator and he also concluded that someone changed the settings on her and her daughter's computers which allowed the person or whoever did it to read all the data it was being sent or received the investigation that's illegal right i would think so yes this was 2008, 2009. So cyber, there weren't cyber stalking laws at that time. Oh, likely. 2009 there weren't? I okay. think so. That was only 11 years ago, but yeah. It's a relatively new okay. thing. The investigators set up electronic barriers to protect the computers, but soon the system was violated again. And he said, well, it's happening from inside your house. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. That's frightening. So despite those issues, she had two suspicious break-ins, one in May and one in August. She also had some slashed tires on her vehicles. Police 
could not prove that Craig violated the restraining order. She continued on with her life and the family spent much of their time attending baseball games for Sean that summer. But life wasn't easy. I mean, everyone in the family knew that this was going on. But, you know, Karen did her best to make things light and try not to let the kids worry too much. I mean, that's what parents do. We don't want our kids to know. Um, One of Lauren's best friends who spent, like, the whole summer there said that everyone was nervous and worried, but Lauren's mom always acted happy and upbeat. Eventually, having lost everything, his family, his job, Craig Kaler was forced to move back in with his parents, I believe sometime around September, or right after the right after the incident. Okay. So between September and November, he ended up moving back to Kansas. He did seek psychiatric help, and again, he was diagnosed with OCD, narcissistic disorder, and histrionic personality disorder. He was prescribed medications, but he refused to take them. And actually, I did look it up. The only one that you can take medication for is OCD, I believe. The other two are like cognitive therapy. Mm. So they're, you know, okay. you're talking about. But I don't think you can ever, once you're a narcissist, you can't get rid of it. Yeah. You mean, and maybe, maybe if you realize you're a narcissist and you can kind of like do, yes. you know. Yeah. Maybe you coping can. Coping mechanisms or right. something like that. But if, if your brain is programmed, that programmed to manipulate and hurt others it's hard to i guess you can notice when you're doing it and change that would be a good thing to look into are there narcissists aware of their narcissism karen and the children continue to live in missouri while he moved back to kansas so they were living their life in missouri you know the girls one of the girls that graduated one was a um i think she was a junior or senior sean was around 10 and and Karen was going to college, so they were they were happy. But they every year, even even before they moved to Missouri, always went back to Kansas for Thanksgiving. Right, which is what people do. Yeah, they so home. they had a yearly tradition. So she would stay with her sister a couple nights, and then Thanksgiving with her sister, and then like on Black Friday that weekend, she would have head over to her grandmother or her grandmother's, okay. Dorothy White. On Thanksgiving weekend in two thousand nine, Karen, her two daughters, and Sonny spent the holiday at Karen's sister Lynn's house. Mm. So Sonny came up for Thanksgiving for a couple days. Sean went with his dad to hunt and spend Thanksgiving with um, his side of the family. Now Craig called Karen and said, Sean's not coming back with you. He's going to stay the rest of the weekend with me. And she's like, no, we're going to see my grandma. It's what we always do. We want the family together. She wanted the entire family to visit her grandmother. So according to Karen's brother, she was very close to her grandmother. It was like a mother-daughter relationship. Mm-hmm. And the next day, she picked up Sean. I read that she met the um, Sean's other grandmother, paternal grandmother, halfway. But then I also read that she went and picked him up at the house. But I don't see where that matters, yeah. honestly. And she went to her grandmother's house in Burlingame, um, Kansas, just like they did every year. And it's a really small rural area. They were enjoying their visit with Dorothy White. Um, and then until Craig snuck in on November 28th, 2009 at around 6 p.m. Craig, without warning, entered Karen's grandmother's house through the back door into the kitchen and shot Karen Kaler while she was at the sink with Sean. They were washing coins. So he shot Karen in front of the sun. Yes. Oh, my word. He allowed the son to run out of the house. He then fired upon her grandmother, Dorothy White, and then he, his daughters, Emily, 18, and Lauren, 16. According to one source, he shot with precision seven times, and all seven shots reached their intended targets. He was a hunter. He was an avid hunter. Like, he had all kinds of guns and stuff. Karen, Emily, and her daughter, Lauren, were pronounced dead at the house. Karen's grandmother died four days later at the hospital. Of course, Sean's life was spared, and he was able to run to a neighbor's to call 911. My word. Poor kid. Right? 
Okay, but that wasn't the first 911 call. All right, there was already another 911 call done before that. Yeah, I see your face. You're like, what? Confusion. What? Well, don't forget that it's a very small town. Yeah. So about a block away from Dorothy White's home, there was um, a couple who had already called 911 because there was a suspicious Red Ford Explorer parked near their home. <laughs> They believed that the person was planning to steal from a nearby tree trimming business. So the couple gave the dispatcher the license plate number and a description of the driver. They said he was a skinny, shooken up man. Leave it to a small town. Right? <laughs> In all, police actually received two 911 calls and then a life alert came through because Dorothy White's home had a life alert system. Oh. And somehow the fire alarm went off. The smoke alarm went off and it automatically goes to... Yeah. They automatically call 911. The life alert representative said, I heard a lot of screaming and they disconnected the machine. It sounded like a fight. Mm. So three 911 calls. Wow. Can you imagine? I, mean, I wonder I just, if like the grandma had like a like an alert yeah, a, necklace, a, you know, like the yeah. alert buttons. And so she hit it. But supposedly it was a fire alarm that went okay. off. So I don't know if like maybe, maybe she, the smoke from the bull. Yeah, I don't know. She, she was in a chair. Oh, okay. She was in a chair because that's what I was thinking. Maybe she hit her life alert bracelet or yeah. something. Hmm. Um, it's definitely possible because, you know, when you. Well, when you're power maybe. I don't know. Yeah. When you're. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Maybe the smoke. I don't know. I don't know what shooting a. It was a 223 caliber rifle. I don't know what that is. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know that that was set off fire alarms. Okay. So that was that was what set off. That's what the, the article said. So I don't know if she had a life alert bracelet or whatever. But mm -hmm. life alert also called, called 911. So that's three calls. Wow. Right? While it's happening. All right. Osage County investigator Nathan Perling was the first to arrive on the scene after responding to the 911 calls. When he arrived at the home, he said that he saw White who was bleeding from her side through a living room window. So he's looking through the window and that as he moved through her home, he found a 223 caliber bullet casing. He found sev several of them in different places. Then he discovered Karen Kaler and Lauren Kaler, both still alive, but badly injured. Emily Kaler was already dead. Perling was wearing a wireless microphone that recorded Karen Kaler's last words. Hurry, I don't want to die. Oh, oh my God, word. this always gives me... I mean, chills. Perling tells her, keep breathing, sweetie. Keep breathing. We're going to get you. We're going to get you. Lauren did identify her father as the shooter. And I believe Karen did too. Or maybe White. Dorothy White's. There was another person who said it was Craig Kaler. Mm. Now, Perling ended up connecting the couple's 911 call about the Red Ford with the shooting at White's home. Because, you know, they, at first they didn't connect the right. call from the couple and they're like okay go check out this suv right now so he as soon as he walked into the house and realized that there was a shooting he tried to uh, locate the suv yes that is coincident i mean you know yes small like, town there was a three nine one one calls yeah. in the same area they've all got to be connected yeah. right yeah Craig was found wandering on the side of the road looking lost and disheveled and he was picked up by the kansas bureau of investigation the former KBI agent who apprehended Kaler quoted Kaler as saying, I messed up. I messed up. A little more than messed up, buddy. You are. Yeah. Additional ammunition was found in his vehicle and an unused bottle of clomazepam was found in his backpack. So he wasn't taking his medication. You know, they never found the murder weapon, by the way. Really? Yes. So he's somewhere between the house and wherever he was found wandering, he ditched it, but they never found it. Clazepam is kind of like a Xanax type. Clomazepam. It is a benzodiazepine, it? Yeah. but I didn't, 
I didn't go any further than what that is. So I'm, I'm thinking that's what he needed for anxiety and um, like panic attacks, paranoia, maybe. Yeah. What does it say? It's a sedative, clonopin. Clonopin, which is like a... a barbitu- not a barbiturate, but it's a benzo. It's okay. in the benzo family. It's okay. the same thing. It's for anxiety. Anti-anxiety. Okay. Mm-hmm. The side effects, however... Uh, can cause paranoid or suicidal ideation and impaired memory, judgment, and coordination. Combining with other substances, particularly alcohol, can slow breathing and possibly lead to death. Okay, so, but he wasn't taking them. And, you know, I don't know that he was a drinker. and He's always in control. And I think that a lot of people who are narcissists don't like feeling out of control. So I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. If you're a narcissist and you drink, please let us know. know. <laughs> but it says uh-huh. the sedative can be treated. It's used to treat seizures panic disorder and anxiety yes yes i did read that all right so on december um in december 2010 a year after the murders craig Kaler had a preliminary trial he entered a plea of insanity which was his only defense against capital punishment so he's like you know what yeah i did it but i was insane so there's no question that nope you're i messed up i messed up Right. Yeah. There's no question that who did the shooting. That's obvious. Now, capital punishment, of course, is the death penalty. Now, the the defense claimed that he mentally snapped because of Karen's lesbian affair. They claimed that the loss of his job, his unused anti-anxiety medication and reports of erratic behavior and the fact that he did not cover up the murder was evidence that he was insane during the crime. The prosecution argued that Craig consciously planned the murder. Being a hunter, they argued Craig had guns in the house and was consciously planning to use the weapons to kill his family in cold-blooded murder. They also argued that he had enough presence of mind to spare himself and his son, which was inconsistent with the defense's argument that he had snapped and was out of control. No, I, I agree with that. Because to, to be criminally insane, it's to not, during that time, you don't realize what you're doing is wrong. You don't realize even what you're doing. Like, it's not a, there's no, like, I was insane at the moment. I did not know what I was doing was criminal. Right. So even when people do snap, yeah. they're still responsible for their actions. Yes, right? yeah. absolutely. Okay. Now, the one of the coolest things that I found was that Kansas, there are four or five states that do not allow the insanity plea. Oh, I so that you that. can't claim you cannot get off on a crime for being insane unless you are totally insane. And, and, and then you're sent to a mental hospital. Right. And then this is what they, they what they call it. They call it the mens rea. And I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Mens rea or mens rea. And this refers to someone's guilty state of mind. So basically, if a person can prove that he was so affected by mental illness that he was unaware that he was committing a crime against a human, then he can get an insanity plea. So here's an example. Someone's walking around town with a samurai sword and he's slaughtering people, but he doesn't think they're people. He thinks they're like demons. rabid wolves okay. or demons or something. All right. That could be an insanity plea in yeah, Kansas. He's out. Because he's not killing humans. He's right. killing, you know, these demons or these wolf, wolverines or whatever. If the murderer knew that he was killing a human, then he cannot plead guilty by reason of insanity in the state of Kansas. Hmm. Kaler had mental illnesses. Yes, he did. But he still knew that he was killing his family and he intended to do so because he let Sean go. Yep. Now, the defense is going to say, well, Sean snuck out, but Sean said we connected. We had eye contact. So most, you know, the prosecution is arguing, no, he was allowed to leave. He was allowed to get out of there. Kaler committed murder, so he's culpable and he must suffer the consequences of his action. Now, the defense can bring up insanity during the trial and during the sentencing phase, but it can't be like your plea. 
Okay, gotcha. Right? An attorney can argue for a lesser sentence based on the sanity of the defendant. Now, many people testified, including 12-year-old Sean. And Sean said, my dad came in and shot my mom. The prosecutor asked the boy, after all you've been through, do you still love your dad? And in a shaky voice, he said, not really. That's really sad. But why would the attorney ask him that? Well, I don't know. But I think it goes to the fact that they were terrorized for so long that I'm not sure that Sean even wanted to go with him. I don't know the story with Sean. Um, Now, Sean is, uh, you know, this was 10. He's 10 at the the time. So he's he's a young adult now. Yeah. Um, Yeah, because he was 12 at this at the during the time of testimony. And this was in 2010. And I'm sure they went over it said, I'm sure that that wasn't like a surprise question right you know and i think that it also kind of shows that over those months and probably pretty much his whole entire life you know that they had been terrorized by this man Mm -hmm. now sean did love hunting he's an avid hunter so he did i'm pretty sure he enjoyed time with his dad but you know i'm not sure what that relationship was killing your killing his mom probably kind of like severed that love tie now the medical examiner testified that karen kaler was shot in the leg that shattered an upper leg bone, and Mm -hmm. then in the back, which damaged her liver, stomach, and diaphragm. White, the grandmother, was shot in the left arm, and the single bullet fired at her continued into her abdomen. So um, she lived longer, so Mm -hmm. it was longer for her to die. The ME further testified that Emily Kaler was shot in the breast and back, and he said she would have survived the first wound if it had been the only one, but the second one struck her spinal cord and likely paralyzed her instantly. Damn it, man. Lauren Kaler was shot in the back and butt, the bullet severely damaging her liver and intestines. And after all the evidence was presented, the jury found him guilty. Now, I do want to just point out, and I think I get to it later when we talk about aggravating circumstances, that one of those girls was running up the stairs from him. The blood trail shows that she was running to safety. So he shot her in the back. God, what a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. During the sentencing of Craig Kaler, the prosecutor reminded the jury to take into consideration the aggravating factors. Eyewitness testimony from Sean, who saw his dad shoot his mom and heard the gunshots that killed his sisters and great-grandmother. The life alert and law enforcement recordings that were entered into evidence on which Lauren Kaler can be heard pleading for help after being shot. Mm. I mean, that just gives me chills every time I read that. There was testimony from a bloodstain from bloodstain anal- analysts that indicated that Kaler had followed his daughter Lauren upstairs when she was shot. So that's just so sad. Testimony from a forensic examiner that all four women's gunshot wounds were not immediately life threatening and that they could still hear and see their surroundings, which Hanley called serious mental anguish. So they didn't die instantly. Um, one of them died instantly. Mm-hmm. One of the daughters died instantly. Emily, I think, or Lauren. Probably the spinal cord injury, maybe. Uh, Lauren Keller shot in the back. Yeah. And two, in addition, during sentencing, the jury received two notes from Sean Kaler. The oh. first note only said something like, my grandparents need my dad. That's all. Like, they don't want, he doesn't want them to give him the death penalty. Are they allowed to do that? Um, I, I think notes the jury would it be mitigating factors that would be a mitigating factor right so yeah you, the defense can present mitigating factors but if it's so it's during oh, the sentencing was... phase right he's already been found guilty now we're in the sentencing phase okay gotcha okay. gotcha okay uh, the second note said I don't want to be the lone surviving member of my family oh bless his heart right so with these directions in mind, on October 11, 2011, Kaler was sentenced to death despite Sean's notes. He was sentenced to death in Osage County District Court for murdering Karen Kaler, his daughters, Lauren Kaler, 16, and Emily Kaler, 18, and 
Karen's 89-year-old grandmother, Dorothy White. Kaler was sentenced to death on October 11, 2011, which ordered that Kaler would receive a lethal injection. Ah. Now, you know that um, his he automatically gets the direct appeal. Right. So, he, so his sentence is upheld by the Kansas Supreme Court. They agree with the lower court that Kaler was not legally insane at the time of the killings. So then, of course, he and his attorneys take the case to the Scottish Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court listens to it in okay. October 2019. I, I have a quick question. Yes. He's in prison. Uh-huh. Who pays for this? Well, the taxpayers, right? That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. That's horseshit. Well, I don't want to pay for that. Do you want him running around free or what? No. What do you want to do? Give him the lethal injection. Okay. Without <laughs> his appeals? He doesn't deserve any. Well, the, 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 it doesn't. It, it didn't need to go to the Supreme Court of the United States. Okay, it but went to Kansas State. So, so here are the questions that that they heard. These are the questions in the case: Kaler versus Kansas, Kansas. Okay? okay, their job was to answer these questions because remember, the Supreme Court will only listen to it if it has to do with the Constitution. Correct. Is the state denying constitutional rights? Basically, do the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments permit permit a state to abolish the in- insanity plea? In other words, does the Constitution guarantee a right to an insanity defense? Anywhere in the Constitution does it say you have the right to plead insanity. Insane. All right. Can states abolish the insanity defense? That's what they're looking at here. Okay. So they're saying Kansas violated his Eighth Amendment when they did that. Okay. They're saying his de- his defense attorneys are saying we have not um there this is cruel and unusual because he was insane they're also saying we he didn't get his due process because he wasn't allowed to plead insanity insane use insanity defense all right i can't roll my eyes hard enough i know all right so the supreme court ended up siding with kansas on this point now i just want to give a little bit of background information Kansas is one of four states that eliminated a defendant's ability to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Mm-hmm. And this all goes down to John Hinckley Jr. Do you remember that mm-hmm. name? Mm-hmm. Right. He's the guy that was was like obsessed with Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. And to get her attention, he decided he was going to assassinate the president. Yep. He was found guilty, not guilty by reason of insanity. And this really upset a lot of states. They're like, he actually did this. Mm-hmm. He's he's. Whether he's insane or not, he did this. He still shot the president right. of the United States. He also killed, um, well, he... Um, um, a Secret Service agent. And then J- uh, James Brady, he's like in a wheelchair, he's mm-hmm. like yeah. um, paralyzed or whatever. Okay. So the other three states are Idaho, Montana, Utah, and then Alaska also limits the insanity defense. So basically, um, the Supreme Court is saying that Kansas does take into account the mental health at both trial and sentencing. That choice is for Kansas to make, and if it wishes to remake and remake again as the future unfolds. So Craig Kaler's conviction was upheld and Kansas is allowed to say, you cannot plead guilty by reason of insanity if you know that you, you if you know you're killing a human being. Yeah. So where is Kaler now? Well, he's the ninth person. There's actually- Soaking um, up our tax money. Right. There's actually a 10th person awaiting ex- execution in Kansas now, but he was the ninth. Though Kansas Department of Corrections doesn't have a death row unit, all of these death uh, penalty inmates are incarcerated at, uh, most of them are at El Dorado Correctional Facility, which is a maximum security prison about 30 miles east and slightly north of Wichita. He is in administrative segregation, and this means he's isolated from other inmates and prison and staff and why it's more expensive to house death a death row inmate than regular is that 
they're not in general population. They're in isolation. They have to have like one-on-one. -on -one. They get one hour out a day. Their meals are in their cells. Um, so there's he probably gets, more staff on death row. And again, there's not really a death row there, but right. they have that solitary yeah. unit. He is isolated from other inmates and prison staff. He gets one hour outdoors five days a week. And even during those periods, a prison officer um, will stand no closer than 40 feet from him. He does have a phone in his cell. Like they do have phones in their cells. Yeah, right. But they're all collect calls. There are no incoming calls. And they are quite expensive. And I think even the incoming, like, yeah, I don't know if they're incoming calls. So <clears throat> I'm not sure who he's calling. Could be the attorneys or whatever. Right. But could be anyone. <clears throat> he receives a meal, uh, his meals through a slot in the front of his, in the door of his cell. And he's shackled when he's escorted to the shower. Well, he's dangerous. He is. It's very heartbreaking. I'm like, he slaughtered all the women in his family. Um, and she was a beautiful woman. She was coming into her own. She's finding the courage to take her life back from her controlling, domineering husband, and he just wouldn't have it. Now, I did, um, I did find a couple of other statistics that women who leave their batterers are at a 75% greater risk of severe injury or death than those who stay. So it's scary to leave because you don't know what's going to happen mm -hmm. or when to expect it. That was from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Also, um, I found, says that insecurity drives domestic violence. The abusers assume everyone is a threat. Your family is a threat, your independence, your sobriety, and that's why they are so jealous. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's 1-800-799-7233 or 1-800-799-SAFE. All right, you can also go to the website, www thehotline.org that's it for today dang yeah what a vile human being and it was, you know what like i picked these murders and then later on i realized that they've already been done like on dateline or one of those i think he was on snapped or something oh i'm sure and i have heard the story on another podcast mm -hmm. but i went ahead and did it i did a little bit differently like i didn't focus on the um the lesbian affair because that was like in the media it was like splashed all over the news like this made that made this sensational and right. i just wanted to focus on the woman that she was and and the and the guts that she had to do what she needed to do to get out yeah because whether she was having an affair or not that's not i mean while my moral compass says that that's not something we should do that doesn't mean that someone should be murdered for it right and whether or not she was having this affair or she wasn't to me it sounds like they just kind of threw that out there to make it as an excuse and it's not a valid excuse and that's for right because it was brought up and i left out a lot of the testimony and stuff because it was brought up um by the defense and then of course the prosecution comes in but i you know what to me that wasn't the focus of it and yeah. so you know what i think most of those other things probably focus on that i did not watch that episode because you know like i'm so illiterate when it comes to finding <laughs> finding those things so so that's it All right. well thank you so much thank you so much for listening this week to this week's murder we appreciate sharing our passion with you and we thank you for your support if you'd like to support us even further please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating and comment your subscription and ratings are essential to our success you can do this on your favorite platform and for more information and links to our facebook instagram and twitter pages visit our website at it wasn't me truecrime.com also, shoot us an email at a truecrimepodcast at gmail.com with suggestions for shows, constructive criticism, or even a simple hello. We are so grateful to spend our time together to share murderous stories. Thank you so much for your support. Please recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime-loving friends and family. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. 
Thanks again, guys. And remember, it, it wasn't, wasn't me. me.